Hello, and welcome to another edition of the Society of Critical Care Medicine's Eye Critical Care Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Weinstein. Today, I will be speaking with Ewan Gallagher, MD, FRCPC, lead author on an article published in the October Critical Care Medicine entitled Core Competency in Mechanical Ventilation, Development of Educational Objectives Using the Delphi Technique. Dr. Gallagher is a clinical associate and an MSc PhD student in the Department of Physiology at the University of Toronto. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Golar. Oh, thank you very much for having me on. Our pleasure. I was hoping you could begin telling us a little bit about how you uh, became involved in this particular study, what your interests uh, were, and what you were uh, trying to gain uh, from uh, evaluating uh, these competencies. So I, uh, I actually started this project very early on in my residency. I was a first-year resident in internal medicine. I was keen to do critical care. And because Dr. Ferguson was the research director, Dr. Ferguson is one of the co-authors on the paper, um, he was the research director at the institution. I thought I would approach him about getting into a research project. And I think uh, at the beginning, he wasn't exactly sure what I should work on, so he consulted uh, one of his other colleagues in critical care here in Toronto. And together, they came up with this idea of developing learning objectives for residents. I have to say, at the beginning, I was kind of looked at this project and thought, oh, man, it's a bit of a make-work project, but whatever, it's uh, an opportunity. I'll take up the opportunity and work on it. But as it turned out, it, uh, I think it was a very useful learning experience for me and really became a springboard for my you know, sort of developing research interest in mechanical ventilation. And the idea of what we were trying to understand was what is what are the set of learning objectives that would encompass basic competency in mechanical ventilation? Dr. Kenny made me familiar with a an important paper published by Christopher Cox and colleagues in the Blue Journal back in 2003, which showed that there were major gaps in the training of residents when it came to mechanical ventilation. Um, there was a kind of disappointing level of ignorance about low tidal volume ventilation and some of the basic strategies that we know improve the outcomes of our patients. So in that paper, they suggested and had some data to suggest that learning objectives might be associated with better learning outcomes. But no one had really ever taken that finding and run with it. So Dr. Kenny, who is the senior author on the paper, suggested to me that by putting together this uh, set of learning objectives in mechanical ventilation, we might be able to address some of these educational gaps and provide a basis for future curriculum development and competency assessment and so on. So. That's how I ended up getting involved in the project and, and what we were trying to achieve with it. And so as um, a first-year resident, you were already interested in critical care and sought a mentor uh, with the idea of uh, being a future intensivist. Yes, exactly. Yeah. I, uh, I guess I'd done a rotation in the ICU as a medical student and just loved the environment, loved the uh, kind of clinical challenges and so on, and, and uh, at least... At the time, I was, uh, I was thinking it was a good fit for me, and it turned out I was right. 
I think it's one of the interesting uh, features of the Canadian training system anyways is that really you have to decide pretty early on what you're going to subspecialize in. So uh, so I think most of us were trying to think as far ahead as we could. I see. The notion of training um, residents uh, and being concerned about our residents learning enough to be competent in uh, mechanical ventilation, why, why residents rather than fellows? Yeah, that's a great question. One of the interesting issues that Chris Cox and colleagues raised has to do with the, the distribution of who's caring for ventilated patients, particularly in the United States. I think uh, there's some data to suggest that a fair number of mechanically ventilated patients, particularly outside of academic tertiary care centers, are in fact cared for by non-specialists in mechanical ventilation or critical care. And as a result, they argued that it was important to address these knowledge gaps with respect to the residents. Sets of learning objectives do exist uh, for fellows produced by different organizations, the Society of Critical Care Medicine and the, uh, I know here in, in Canada, the Royal College of Physicians has proposed ba very basic set of learning objectives for uh, fellows training in critical care. But nothing's really ever been published specifically focusing on what residents need to know. And given that some of these residents, whether they're training in medicine, surgery, anesthesia, are going to go out and care for ventilated patients in the community, uh, we felt it was important to identify what they, what was the basic competency that they needed to have to do that. Sitting here in the U.S., we thank you for uh, for uh, delving into this topic. Uh, it was I was interested to learn from you that um, there are differences uh, between uh, the U.S. and Canada, and that we probably have more um, hospitalists and internists uh, managing ventilators in many of our uh, smaller. Um, hospitals and uh, outside the academic medical centers, uh, whereas it's not so in Canada, is that is that right? I would say the vast majority of ventilated patients are cared for by physicians with intensive care training. I think that's a relatively recent phenomenon. The, the supply of intensivists was really ramped up for a variety of reasons a decade ago. And um, I think also population in Canada is much smaller and much less evenly distributed geographically. So populations really tend to cluster around urban centers, which obviously tend to have greater access to individuals with intensive care training. But nevertheless, and I've for sure seen this myself, in some smaller centers there are small, relatively low acuity ICUs where you have patients cared for by non-intensivists, and they might be ventilated for, you know, mild pneumonia, but any time those patients get significantly ill, they'll be transported to a, to a tertiary care center. So I think that is a, a difference, you know, raises the question of whether this is necessary to focus on residents from a Canadian standpoint. I think it is still very valuable. I think as a resident walking into the ICU, the ventilator is basically a big black box. You know, there's so much to learn starting your critical care rotation, and particularly with ventilation, it seems like there's so many different issues that uh, I think the set of learning objectives really helps to focus your learning. One of the things that we did with the study was we prioritized the learning objectives. We had the panelists assign a priority rank score, 
and and that I think really helps residents to focus their learning and get more out of their IC rotation so that they do feel more comfortable with mechanical ventilation and even temporarily caring for ventilated patients in the emergency room or during a consultation before an intensivist sees the patient. Uh, maybe you can actually go through a, uh, how you did um, uh, your study in terms of getting uh, input and uh, coming up with a list of um, learning objectives. So we conducted uh, an anonymous email survey of a number of experts in mechanical ventilation and medical education across North America. We had a, a system for trying to identify these experts objectively by the cross-linked uh, PubMed search of uh, mechanical ventilation uh, publications together with a list of recent conferences speakers who'd address mechanical ventilation to try and sort of objectively identify people who were recognized by the community to be experts in mechanical ventilation. And once we identified these individuals, we pursued them until we found some adequate number of people who are willing to participate in the panel. And each panelist remained anonymous throughout the, throughout the uh, Delphi process, and basically they were all asked to submit items that they thought would be suitable for a set of learning objectives specifically to address the issue of what does it take to be basically competent in caring for a mechanically ventilated patient. And we had four rounds. During the first round, the panelists submitted about 200 items, about half of which were really duplicates of each other. And in this second, third, and fourth rounds, the panelists had the opportunity to progressively refine that list by voting on whether items should be included or excluded or revised and suggesting revisions and so on. And, and so at the end of the four rounds, we wound up with 56 items that met criteria for final inclusion. So it was quite a long list, actually, somewhat longer than I was expecting. Was there some ranking in terms of the importance of different uh, learning objectives? Yeah, exactly. So in the in the final round, the panelists were asked to put a score for priority uh, between zero and ten. Ten being high priority or most important, zero zero being no priority. And so we just took the average uh, priority score that the panelists gave each item, and then ranked the items according to that. And there's actually uh, in the supplemental digital content on the paper, there's actually a table where we supply the top 20 items and the rank scores for all of the items to try and help clinicians or educators who are interested in implementing these learning objectives and deciding which ones are the most important uh, and which ones uh, should be should be the focus of educational efforts. And other than the, 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 the quantity, were there other things that surprised you about the list? I felt pleasantly surprised about the sort of, I guess you could call it the face validity of the objectives. Just looking at the list, it's, I think, fairly comprehensive, actually, and addresses most of the issues that come up in mechanical ventilation in my own clinical experience. You know, we address everything from modes of ventilation to complications, weaning and extubation, which even include an item about communicating decisions to withhold or withdraw mechanical ventilation. So I think it was a fairly comprehensive list, and it really, you know, pays tribute to the fact that 
mechanical ventilation comes with a long list of issues, both physiological and um, pathophysiological and issues relating to patient communication and so on. So it really requires a high level of competency, I guess, to, to care for a mechanical ventilated patient adequately. I think one of the other things I was surprised about the level of um, expectation from the panel, so for example, identifying and uh, addressing patient ventilator interactions is not something I'd expect from a resident on a daily basis. If a resident uh, started to worry about auto-triggering or ineffective triggering, I'd be, I'd be extremely impressed. But I, I guess it um, probably is raises the issue of whether a clinician who, who proposes to care for these patients in the, in the community setting, should he or she really be able to identify and address those types of issues? And given the emerging data that shows that, for example, patient ventilator dyssynchrony is associated with worsened outcomes, these types of issues probably are important for people to be able to identify and address. So I think the list of learning objectives, although it was longer than I originally imagined it would be, I think it's a comprehensive list and raises a number of competencies that uh, I wouldn't have initially considered necessary. Perhaps residents or, or fellows listening would, would say, well, that, I guess when people come up with learning objectives, there is a more elaborate process than uh, simply making a list. At the same time, uh, you know, do we need such an elaborate process to, to come up with a list of learning objectives? Um, mm-hmm. What's the benefit of, of uh, uh, doing it uh, this way rather than um, asking one or two experts to come up with a list um, of requirements? Yeah, I, I think that's a good question. And I imagine people who study issues around consensus and so on might have a lot to say about that. I think certainly the more expert input you have, the greater the validity of the of the list, at least in terms of its comprehensiveness. I think one of the other things is is that in order for an item to be included in the final list, 70% of the panelists had to agree that the item was necessary. And the median level of agreement for for the items was 88%. So despite some of these items evidencing high expectations, the actual level of agreement around these items was actually pretty strong across the panel. So I'm not sure whether using only one or two experts would come up with a, a shorter list. Um, I think, if anything, having a, a larger number improves the validity, particularly in view of the fact that we tried to draw from people coming from different points of view. We had frontline resident educators who were really uh, included specifically because we felt that if, if anybody understands what resident issues and needs are, and these, those are the people who are going to understand. So we, when we sought those members of the panel out, the criteria were that they had to be the appointed educator in the intensive care unit at their institution and and interact with their residents on a daily basis and so on. So so we tried to include people on the panel who coming from different points of view in order to try and optimize the validity of the content. But uh, I guess uh, some might look at this a bit cynically and say, you know, this is an ivory tower list and get into the real world. With just one or two uh, experts, I, I guess you do run the risk of either having too short or too long of a list. Um, yeah. so I guess it could go both ways. And I guess the other thing would be bias in terms of 
their own pet peeves or issues or research or whatever. So by increasing the number, you really hopefully spread the bias around, even things out in that regard. You know, when I think about it, I, I, you know, is it, I guess the what are we what are we trying to uh, improve? Uh, and I suppose the idea is you know, to to ensure that residents on completion of residency are able to manage uh, patients on a ventilator. You know, the an opposite way to go would be to try and work on creating more fellows or more intensivists. Yeah. It begs, I guess, to ask what, you know, what models of critical care uh, are important and valued and, and what will lead to better patient outcomes. Yeah, I, th- I think that that's a really important question. And I think particularly in the States, as I understand it, they're debate around the administration of critical care, I think the research that I've read and I've seen suggests that intensivists are associated with better patient outcomes overall, and I think that was that's really been the impetus for closing so many ICUs and, and uh, developing specialized critical care programs. I know that when that data emerged, that was really the impetus for the government to change the system and, and um, incentivize closing ICUs from a hospital standpoint and so on. So I, I think most people buy into the idea that a specialist has uh, has something to offer in terms of improving the outcomes. I think the, the beauty of these learning objectives, though, is, is that um, they don't necessarily imply that you have to have intensive care training to competently care for a ventilated patient. You know, if you could demonstrate meeting these objectives somehow, then perhaps you could continue or or continue to work in that role. In that role, I think the objectives have a number of potential applications. They could guide the training of current residents. They could guide uh, the basis for competency assessment and ventilation for current residents. I think they're also a useful guide for clinicians who care for ventilated patients, sort of as a con- tool for continuing medical education. So, running down, running your eyes over this list, do you think that you could meet these requirements, and and which ones are areas where you could pursue, you know, further expertise, whether by reading or attending conferences or or so on. So, the objectives might provide some impetus for encouraging that, you know, that fellows and specialists in intensive care care for mechanically ventilated patients, but certainly they can help to improve the outcomes for patients now by ensuring that anyone who cares for a ventilated patient works hard to make sure they can meet these objectives. When I put on my intensivist hat, I think, well, mechanical ventilation is really just one potentially small component of uh, managing uh, patients in the intensive care unit. Uh, So do we need to develop... um, other learning objectives as they apply to uh, other areas of uh, intensive care medicine? You know, that's uh, that's an interesting question I haven't really thought about too much. I would argue that the lack of learning objectives for all these other issues probably impedes people's learning. I Personally, reflecting back on my own experience interacting with these objectives, even before I rotated through the ICU, having done the study and being forced to as a first-year resident in medicine to read about, you know, plateau pressure and driving pressure just to understand what the panelists were talking about. I, w- I would say that by the time I started rotating through the ICU, I felt actually 
much more comfortable with mechanical ventilation than most of my colleagues at the same level, sometimes even the fellows. So I, you know, looking back, I think working on this project and being involved in these objectives really helped to guide my own learning about mechanical ventilation. And, and you know, that's one anecdotal bit of evidence. There is evidence in the literature that learning objectives improve educational outcomes and performance. So if that's the case, then I think significant efforts need to be directed to really defining what, what is it that you need to know as an intensivist. Some of the interesting comments I when I presented this data at the ATS, I a number of lots of first of all, I've I was surprised by the amount of interest in this work because I think people recognize that this is a bit of an educational gap. But some of the comments I got were things like, "Well, did you integrate um, learning objectives about kind of systems performance and how mechanical ventilation, you know, it's primarily managed in North America by a respiratory therapists. So, you know, are there objectives about interprofessional communication and the ability to analyze and evaluate and optimize system performance. So, yeah, the, you know, as intensivists, there's so many different things that you're doing that you think about that you've got your hands in. Um, I think the more people can drill down to say what is it that you need to be good at, uh, the more that people are going to be able to figure out, you know, how to direct their own learning. And I suppose even on the flip side, um, you know, if we have X expertise in our respiratory therapists, how much expertise do we need to have uh, in the physicians uh, that are taking care of the patients as well? It is more of a collaborative relationship. Both parties are providing uh, useful information. Yeah, I think uh, think that's a great point, and I think the reality is on a day-to-day basis, we generally rely very heavily on our respiratory therapy colleagues to manage all these different ventilator issue. Why why do we need to know this as well? I think, first of all, just to be able to understand and communicate about the patient's issues. And secondly, intensivists play the role of leading leading the team. Residents who end up caring for mechanically ventilated patients in the ICU will be called upon to play this role of team leader. And so to lead the team, you need to be able to understand the issues, particularly those ones where uh, we know that patient outcome is affected, like just being aware of low tidal volume ventilation and the need for a daily trial of spontaneous breathing and all the kind of very basic things about ventilation that, to be honest with you, although the RTs that I work with at this institution are an outstanding group, occasionally get missed or, uh, you know, I just find myself asking why are we doing things this way and not that way. I think, uh, and, and just to understand the nature of the illness and how to manage it. I think all of these things are important to our, our educational training. Those are all great points. Now that we have uh, a nice uh, set of learning objectives, and I'm, uh, uh, I don't know how many people out there have the answer to this, but how, how do we begin to measure competency, how well these learning objectives are being adhered to? Um, and, uh, you know, and I guess even to take the next step, are we uh, improving uh, patient care at the bedside? Yeah, I, I think that's the million-dollar question in educational research, uh, and I think it's very difficult to do this, which is, frankly, why I stayed away from educational research. I, I you know, obviously, uh, for example, the way that Christopher Cox and colleagues assessed competency was they developed and validated a very basic test where, through a series of scenarios, 
of ventilated patients asked residents how they would manage ventilation. And I think that can be an effective assessment strategy to make sure that people are picking up on the key issues. I teach ventilation in our hospital to base specialty residents on a monthly basis in a seminar setting, and I always try to use these sort of case scenarios uh, pre and post session to see whether they've improved at all and picked up on the key issues. So I think that can be a, a valid way of, of getting some concept of whether the objectives are improving. I think my dream study to assess the effects of these uh, learning objectives would be a cluster randomized trial where you have some institutions that are provided with the learning objectives and some that are not in a random fashion and then you develop a series of metrics for you know rates of adherence of, to quality markers such as low tidal volume ventilation etc and if you wanted you could even include patient outcomes in that kind of study although I think that's a lofty goal to be honest with you I also think it's even more difficult to assess competency without these learning objectives so at least the objectives provide a framework for working on these kinds of competency assessment tools and I know that colleagues of mine here in Toronto are working on those types of tools and using the objectives for that purpose. So I think uh, I think it's doable and I think it's important. I think education in the ICU in some respects is a little bit ad hoc. If we happen to talk about weaning and pressure support on rounds, it's great. And although there's a planned series of seminars in my unit to try and cover the basics of critical care, I think a lot of issues aren't dealt with comprehensively. So I think it's important to understand what our residents are coming away with and what they're going to do if they're working on their own. Uh, I'm sure that educators in critical care uh, can really take uh, take a lot away from this set of learning objectives uh, to employ and uh, certainly look forward to, to future work. Oh, you're most welcome, Michael. It's uh, It's been a pleasure speaking with you and uh, I wanted to note uh, to the audience that uh, a lot of your focus in research these days is on uh, regarding ventilator-induced uh, diaphragmatic dysfunction. Uh, so maybe we look forward to talking to you in the future. Yeah, thanks very much for having me on. I, I hope that everyone finds this work uh, some help in, in their efforts to improve outcomes for our patients. This concludes another edition of the Eye Critical Care Podcast please check out our website at www.sccm.org slash iCriticalCare for more episodes or subscribe at iTunes by searching SCCM. For the iCriticalCare podcast, I'm Dr. Michael Weinstein. Experience the true beauty of the Caribbean at SCCM's 42nd Critical Care Congress to be held January 19th to 23rd, 2013 in San Juan, Puerto Rico. From the breathtaking sunsets and shimmering beaches to the ancient caves and cool mountainous subtropical rainforests, Puerto Rico provides a vast canvas of diverse environments and unrivaled natural wonders. Surrender to the charm of island life at the 2013 Congress, where more than 4,000 critical care professionals will come together to advance the mission of providing the best possible care to critically ill and injured patients. Register today at www.sccm.org slash congress. Michael S. Weinstein, M.D., F.A.C.S., F.C.C.P., serves as an associate editor for the iCritical Care Podcasts. 
Dr. Weinstein is Associate Professor of Surgery at Jefferson Medical College in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. He is Director of the Surgical ICU and Executive Medical Co-Director of the Thomas Jefferson University Hospital Programs for Critical Care. His clinical and academic interests relate to palliative care integration in the intensive care unit, medical ethics, diaphragmatic pacing, and spinal cord injury. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members.